0: Welcome to the Audit 15 Fun Podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, we're going to be talking about the Wirecard case from a whistleblower perspective. And to talk about that topic, I have Pav Gill. Pav is the Chief Legal Officer of a crypto exchange currently. He is better known as the Wirecard whistleblower and is the 2022 recipient of the Sentinel Award from the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Bob, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me, John. Yes, absolutely. So let's, you know, for those who may not be as familiar with the Wirecard case or with your journey, you know, when you're with that organization, can you kind of walk us through from the time that you started at Wirecard and, you know, what you're hired to do. And, you know, like when you started noticing things and to the point where you're like, okay, I need to report this externally.
1: Sure. So I was really excited to start with Wirecard as their first, um, legal person based in Singapore, in Asia, actually covering 11 markets in the region. So I had a direct reporting line to the Munich office, which is HQ for Wirecard. And my role was to be the eyes and ears on the ground for the legal team in Munich. Um, Wirecard had entered the Asia Pacific region through a series of M&A 100% acquisitions. And also they had acquired Citibank's merchant acquiring portfolio, um, which expanded their presence into 11 markets in the region. So somebody needed to help, uh, be based on the ground, help with, you know, getting various licenses acquired and also with integration type issues. So that was, you know, a German listed company, um, and, and in the payment space, which everyone thinks they know until they get into it, (laughs) you realize it's a whole universe of its own. So yeah, it was, was a very exciting opportunity. And, and I definitely hit the ground running.
0: So, so at at what point did you start noticing things inside the organization that you're like, okay, there's something fishy here. And then at what point did you think, I, okay, I need to maybe report this externally.
1: Well, I think it was a few weeks into the stint where, um, I was told to be introduced to a guy or get close to a guy called Ido and Ido was an Indonesian male who practically operated as like the third third or fourth most powerful finance person in the whole organization. Um, what was interesting about him was the way he carried himself and the fact that, you know, he had a very questionable background and CV in terms of experience, but yet, um, I mean, and, and very small, simple things like he could not really string an email together that made sense. (laughs) So what I didn't understand is how did he swing this? Like how did he manage to get into such a powerful position where every executive vice president in the Asia Pacific region uh, or APEC would be relying on him for anything. You know, so we found out that he has the, he has the years of, um, Marcus Brown of Jan Marsalek in particular, and Burkhard Leigh who was the CFO at the time. So, um, that's why I think, you know, if all the EVPs were reporting to Jan Marsalek, the COO, uh, they, they all fell in line where Ido was concerned.
0: Gotcha. So that was the, that was the first red flag. And then at what point would you say that you thought, okay, there's something really fishy, and I need to start uh, saving my documentation, saving emails, whatever he needed to, to you know, to, to have his documentation so that you would report externally.
1: I think that was just way down the line. Um, in the earlier days, I kind of put all these things in terms of a challenge because even the Wirecard was pretty mature in how it was operating and behaving in, in Europe. Um, in APAC, due to the fact they were so new, I thought it had a more startup mentality, and I did put it down to a lot of teething type issues. Uh, but over time, if you saw like how EDO was operating, and how uh, there was a real flexibility with financial accounting. So, for example, we wanted to apply for a license in Hong Kong. Uh, the subsidiary that was being used for that license application was dormant for the last two years. So we advised finance that the initial set of, you know, financial statements, which were provided to us to give to the regulator will most likely not successfully result in a license. And Edo said, that's okay. We will just let us know what numbers are required and, you know, we, we will find a way around it. And he came back with profit generating numbers. So I think that was the first major red flag and that exact scenario resulted in, um, one of his subordinates coming to me in confidence, basically whistleblowing, um, because she feared for her, for her personal safety and for the fact that she was being instructed to carry out a whole series of dubious transactions, um, which clearly indicated some form of round tripping and accounting
0: fraud. Yeah, flexibility in financial accounting. That's a nice way to put it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a skill I constantly
0: try to acquire, which is being diplomatically correct. <laughs> so talking about the flexibility in their financial accounting, uh, cause it, it wasn't something that, you know, just happened once or just happened a few times. It was, it, it was like somewhat part of the culture there from what I gathered from my research of the company, they started, um, uh, you know, years, years before, uh, and they had some issues in the past. So in your opinion, and I, I had an interview with, uh, Dan McCrown, who's the investigative reporter for the financial times. And I asked this exact same question and I asked you to, to get your, your perspective on this, how did the auditors, external or internal miss so much? <laughs> How did they, like, they totally missed that. There was like a $2 billion in cash that did not even exist. How did they miss that?
1: Well, I don't think they, uh, they missed it. I think they just didn't want to see it. So that's the difference, right? When it's like an, it's like an active, uh, intentional omission or what I used to use on Twitter as a phrase, which is not just the auditors, but the regulators, especially in Germany, chose to ostrich themselves in face of what was going on. Because I think in order to actually embrace that, that massive, I wouldn't call it a white elephant <laughs> because it wasn't white, but the <laughs> elephant in the room that would have had potentially more issues
0: than just, you know, status quo. That's very, very interesting. They didn't miss it. They just didn't want to see it or ignored it. Right.
1: Yep. And, and to me that there's just no way to categorize it, but definitely some form of gross negligence there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there, I, I, I don't know the current status, but I know that, uh, EY, they had some litigation after the fact. So, okay. Uh talking about your your journey and your experience there i know that being a whistleblower takes a lot a lot of courage kids it's a you know it's a huge huge decision in your career so at what point or what was the thing that made you decide okay i will go and report this you know externally and i will you know this this People need to know this and I'm willing to take the risk on my career, on the future here, because I think this is the right thing to do. At what point did you like, okay, this is what I need to do?
1: I think that's when Wirecard didn't stop, um, even after I left the company and they went on a campaign of um, intimidation and just destruction and obstruction in that way. Um, they would not let me get jobs. Uh, they would create job interviews where the interviewer will just spend all one hour asking me about why I left Wirecard. Um, and I knew why he was doing that is so that I would say something wrong and then get into a lawsuit for having breached certain confidentiality related aspects of, of my employment with Wirecard uh, or leaving terms. Um, and they reached a point where I think, uh, you just put in a corner, right? So, as I as I was saying in the ACFE speech, if you are put into a corner, then instead of turning back and trying to squeeze yourself into a smaller space, at some point you should just turn around and face what's causing this, um, because you know criminal organizations or such behaviors is just no different from bullying. And right. you need to put a stop to it. And I think that's what happens with nearly every criminal out there that gets caught, right? One day you just, you realize that you met the wrong person that puts everything, uh, puts an end to all the nonsense.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just to clarify for the listeners here who may not be aware of the, the full story. So you actually, you left Wirecard. card, you did not blow the whistle when you're with, you know, still with the organization. And then they were harassing you. They were trying to get in the way of you, trying to get other jobs. And that's kind of what ultimately drove you to, okay, I, you know, you guys need to stop this and, uh, we'll re, you know, I'll report this to the authorities.
1: Yeah. And not even the authorities per se, because, um, I thought the best way to initiate a multi- level uh, investigation would not be to go to like a local authority because you never have control over the process as to what happens and you know you feel like a really small person when you do such things um you you know you know just like a a, practically a nobody uh, or what could easily be termed by even the police as a disgruntled employee which we don't know how seriously to take, or worse, they start asking you, how come you have all this information with you? <laughs> um, and, and, and do you know that's a criminal offense or theft or something? I don't know. So you don't want to get into that kind of scary situation primarily because there's no whistleblowing protections and laws that can protect you. Um, at least not in Singapore, for example. Uh, so what you want to do is you want to go to a very reputable outlet, um, and we are talking here like, you know, guardian of FT or, or, somebody of that, that repute, uh, which is not a tabloid and will be taken seriously. And you want them to look at this as a third party. And sometimes even just tell you if you're overreacting, right. right. Uh, but not, and they report it after proper, you know, investigative journalism. Um, then the whole world sits and takes notice, which
0: is exactly what happened. Gotcha. Yes. Very, very good point. You gotta be really strategic about how you, how you do it. So that was definitely a good decision on your part. Uh, and, and I just have to ask this question. Was there any decision that you made during that process that you're like, okay, this was not a wise decision. Is there anything that you regretted from that process?
1: I mean, I wouldn't say regret. But I know that because I was new to this whole thing, um, even speaking with journalists, uh, I was hesitant in giving everything that I had with me, uh, for example, my own inbox, um, (laughs) I didn't know like whether that would incriminate me or how much to trust um journalists because you always hear about how like journalists can't be trusted in general right so you don't know if, um that I, so i held back some info uh just to see like where does this process go so in in a weird way that could have been a regret because if i'd given everything at one go maybe the process would have been faster um gotcha. and that's what I subsequently did. So FD, FD, was reporting for a few months and you know, once there was that short selling ban, which Baffin, the German regulator imposed, uh, and then there came a point where FD couldn't report anything. I realized that this was a, a national problem in terms of Germany just didn't want to report this or believe it. They viewed it as, you know a, a beef with the UK, you know, in that sense, which is like, why is this UK paper jealous of our FinTech darling? Um, so I realized that I needed to change the perception from within Germany. And that's when I did round two, which is, I spoke to the Suddeutsche Zeitung of the SZ and that's when I
0: really gave them everything I had. Gotcha. So two, two ideas there, um, you know, give the information first, find a Someone that's reputable that you can trust second, if you have the information, you know, just be as open as you can. I know you had your reasons, but, uh, so thinking about people who are maybe in the same situation as it, as you were a few years ago, what, um, uh, message do you have for them? What's, you know, maybe there's someone out there that it's in a similar situation, what's your, what's your a uh, recommendation to them?
1: I mean, it's really hard to recommend anything because every, uh, case is so bespoke and different, right? But I do say that, you know, you, you just can't live in fear and you should always be true to yourself. So if that means resigning and getting out of the problem, then just do that and move on if you can, right? Um, cause I would never. I never recommend anyone to be a hero because unlike, you know, a lot of cartoons and stuff, the heroes in real life don't always make it in one piece. So, you know, you do, you should really look at all circumstances and pretty much do a cost benefit analysis. Like what is it that you want? Do you think it's worth hanging on in a place which, um, if you did the right thing could result in a whole, you know, part two, a 2.0 of that company. Or oh, is that a place or oh, we're doing that jeopardize not just your safety, but all kinds of aspects of your, you know, your future. So there's just so many questions to ask, And I think this is one of the problems where whistleblowers, which whistleblowers face because they don't really have anyone to speak with, especially if you're an accounting person, uh, you know, in the finance department, an auditor or a lawyer compliance person, you're so bound by professional ethics and confidentiality requirements that You can't even discuss this with, you know, your loved ones, strictly, um, or your colleagues. So who, where do you go? It's, it's really in a way, you know, speaking to yourself. Yeah. Yeah,
0: that's, yeah, definitely a, a tough position to be in and some very practical advice from you, cost benefit analysis. It's not always black and white, uh, from someone who was in that position like you were a few years ago. So. Really appreciate you being on the podcast, Pav. What is, for those who want to connect with you, get in touch with you, learn about your journey, what is the best way for them to connect with you? Best way
1: would be LinkedIn. Um, name is Pav Gill on LinkedIn and yeah, always happy to put time aside, um, to have a brief chat or or help anyone through, um, just be a listening ear, which as I said, like a few minutes ago, um, is sometimes all someone needs to do the right thing absolutely
0: thank you so much both
1: thank you thanks for your time